morning, you need page 868 for Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, that is to Ephraim and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this, say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offences, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know 
that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. This is God's word. Morning, let me add my welcome. My name's Phil, I'm the associate vicar here and it's lovely to have the opportunity to take you through this fantastic passage. Let's pray and we'll get going. Lord God, we pray that as happened with Ezekiel, that your word would be attended by the power of your spirit. Please, would you breathe life into us this morning? Amen. Now, Jesus' uh, final words to the church, they're printed at the end of our our service sheet. We'll, We'll say them at the end of the service. And they tell us what your goal, your mission in life is if you're a follower of Jesus. It's very simple. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Look, we've all got different responsibilities in life, uh, employee, employer, parent, student, friend, child. But if you're a follower of Jesus, your fundamental mission is to make disciples from all the nations, to call people to follow Jesus. So the question arises, why does it take up so little of my time, my thought, my attention, my planning. I think there's probably lots of reasons for that, for for those of us who call ourselves Christians and know that that's what we're all called to do. The primary one probably is we're busy. Actually, come on, let's be honest, we're Londoners, that's the answer for everything. How's things going? Oh, a bit busy. Uh, What are you doing for the bank holiday? I haven't really thought, I've been so busy. Um, Fancy coming around for dinner? Oh, I'd love to, just when I'm a little bit less busy maybe. Um, What's two and two? Busy? Uh, the answer for everything, isn't it? <laughs> the urgent busyness of every day crowds out the eternal fundamental mission that God has given us in life. Work, family, moving house, planning holidays, they, they all demand our attention, and so God's mission slightly gets crowded out. I think that's probably the main reason. But this morning I want to f- focus on another reason. The, the other big reason really I think for most of us that God's calling on us to make disciples doesn't form a bigger part of our lives if we're followers of Jesus and this isn't distraction it's well it's defeatism to be honest in theory I believe Jesus can save anyone but in practice well my experience is that when I tell people about Jesus they just shrug their shoulders or laugh or or mock uh and so my zeal for, for the mission to, to spread the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth, it's, it's kind of dampened by my experience in my own little corner of the world where it doesn't feel like the gospel has much power. Not a whole lot seems to happen when I tell people about Jesus. And that brings us to Pentecost, which, as Matt has already told us, is a, the day in which Anglicans celebrate the original Pentecost when God poured out his spirit onto or rather into his people the church now in the evening we've been working through the the book of acts and right at the beginning of the book of acts we're told why it is that God does this why does God pour out his spirit on his people and acts chapter 1 and verse 8 we're told um, that uh, Jesus says to his people that I will pour my spirit on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem Judea and to the ends of the earth. So God pours out his spirit onto his people to empower and equip for mission. That's why he does so. 
the original Pentecost was World Focus Sunday for the church. That's what it was. The Holy Spirit is the power to make mission possible. And that brings us to Ezekiel 37. Because what Ezekiel 37 does is show us that the Holy Spirit has the power that we need to make it possible to spread the message of Jesus to the most unlikely of places. Muslim North Africa, as some in our church have gone to do. Amongst LGBTQ activists in London. To those in communist North Korea. Among, well, your neighbours, your family and your colleagues. That's what Ezekiel is going to tell us this morning. That's the truth that the Spirit of God wants to convince you of this morning. Now we're parachuting for just one Sunday right into the middle of the book of Ezekiel. Um, and uh, this map shows us what's happening in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel contains the, the words and the, the sometimes mind-bending visions that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel when he was in Babylon. So um, you can see the Babylonian Empire there and kind of halfway up, two-thirds of the way over, is the city of Babylon. And it's between 593 and 571 BC. And at this point, God's people are in Babylon because they've rejected God. For centuries, they've worshipped other gods. They've exploited and abused the poor, and they've ignored God's stern and increasingly severe warnings. They've just ignored him. And at last, they've been driven out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, by the Babylonian army. And just a couple of chapters before our reading, the exiles, the traumatized exiles, have just heard that the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed after a rebellion. And so at this point, what you need to know is at this point in the book of Ezekiel, hope is, it is dead. God's people are sinful, they're wicked, and they're suffering his punishment. Their city's been razed to the ground, and the symbol of God's promise of his presence with them, the temple, has just been reduced to rubble and ash. The situation is utterly hopeless. Now, if you know your Bible, that ought to make you smile, because there is nothing so hopeful in the Bible as when things are hopeless. Nothing should make you as expectant that God is about to act as when human hope has finally run dry. It's always the way. God's great deliverances begin at the very point when human hope runs out. Well, think of John 11. Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is gravely ill, a kind of terminal illness. This guy is going to die soon if you don't get here quickly, Jesus. And so Jesus does nothing. It's when Lazarus is dead, and not only dead, but has been rotting in the grave for three days in a hot climate. That's the point at which Jesus acts and raises this rotting corpse to new life. Here in Ezekiel 37, God shows his prophet, look, no, things aren't as bad as the people feared. They're a whole lot worse. They're dead. They're not spiritually sick. They are skeletons. But he then shows him that God is a God of resurrection life. Let's work our way through it. So mission is pointless because people are spiritually dead. That's our encouraging first point. Mission is pointless because people are spiritually dead. Verses 1 to 2. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me into the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. We know the song, but it is a weird, eerie image. 
You know, has he just been eating too much cheese the night before? It's, it's just, wow. Imagine this dream of a valley full of skeletons. There's been some great, horrific battle. A terrible carnage. But the, the soldiers who died weren't buried with honor. They were just left to rot and be picked over by scavengers. And eventually, over the decades, on the barren ground, their skeletons are bleached dry by the sun. And if the, the image is strange and, and kind of horrifying, the question that God asks is just ridiculous. Verse 3, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? What? Are you mad? I mean, let, let's be honest. We're all used to medical dramas on TV where the people in cardiac arrest are worked on by the heroic medic and they come back to life. There are probably some medics here who've done that. And so if the question was asked of Ezekiel after you know, somebody literally just dropped dead in front of him, can this person who's just dropped dead live? Well, the answer would be, well, with the correct medical intention, yeah, yeah, probably. But if in a medical drama, instead of seeing uh, the, the doctor jump on someone who's just died, you saw the doctor go down to the morgue in the hospital and pull a body out of the cold storage and then start to perform CPR, I think, yeah, no. <laughs> that's not how it works but this is even more I mean how do you even begin to perform CPR on a skeleton I think that that's the point though of Ezekiel's answer that he recognizes it I said sovereign lord you alone know in other words lord this is beyond me life and death they're in your hands only you can determine who lives and who dies Life against death. If you, if you were listening during the, the reading, you might have picked up the back and forth in this passage, the sheer number of times that two words appear, bones and breath. Actually, breath appears even more than you realize because the, the same Hebrew word, ruach, is translated spirit, wind and breath. It covers all three in this passage. And so bones 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 it stands for death 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 and breath is life the repetition is deliberate it's, it's like a tennis match it sort of goes backwards and forwards it's bones breath bones breath death life death life what is going to win but what does it all mean it's it, it's just weird weird vision well the interpretation comes in the second half so let's jump ahead to verse 11 then he said to me, that's, that is God said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. This is a prophecy about Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. And the people recognize what God shows Ezekiel. We are cut off from the God of life. Spiritually, we're dead. We're skeletons. But writing to the church in Ephesus in the New Testament, well, the Apostle Paul says this is true not just of Israel, the Old Testament people of God who've rejected him. This is true of all of us, all humans. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Not sick, not weak, not spiritually underdeveloped, but dead. In our natural state, humans who are living and breathing and walking around spiritually, we are dead. 
utterly lacking the spiritual life that can only be found in connection with God our Creator. And the physical death that comes to all of us, it just proves the point. Now, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, don't be insulted by this. I didn't come to church to be told you're spiritually dead. It's just a bit rude. The the Bible's an equal opportunities insulter, and it says it not just to those non-Christian people out there. It says it to you and me. It says, church, God's people, this is your natural state. This is all of humanity until something happens. All of us, by nature, are spiritual skeletons. If it was true of God's people in the Old Testament, when they turn away from God, it's true of all of us. Okay, so what? (laughs) Well, what this means is the task of mission, the task that Debs was talking to us about earlier, the task of calling people from all nations to worship Jesus isn't difficult. It's impossible. When we send Debs back to Paris, we send her back to a city of dry bones, bleached dry by secularism and materialism. When we sent Edward back recently to North Africa, we sent him back to a country of spiritual skeletons, bleached dry by centuries of militant Islam. And a right attitude to world mission begins with a sober understanding of the task that Christians face. But it's not just, of course, the people out there in the world. It's also true of the people here in London. Our offices, homes, halls of residence, sports teams. Spiritually speaking, it's skeletons we walk amongst. Valleys of bleached dry bones. When I pluck up the courage to talk to my neighbor about Jesus and invite them to church, I am speaking to a skeleton, spiritually. Now, which of these two would be easier to wake up? Uh, which of those do you think you've got a better chance of waking up and bringing back to life? Uh, The corpse in the morgue or the skeleton? It's ridiculous. I mean, they're both dead, neither of them. But I think that many many of us Christians, we make the mistake of limiting those who we speak to about Jesus. We shy away from some people because to us they look like the skeleton completely hopeless. There's no way. They're too confident in their current ideology. They're too happy with their current life. They're too hostile to Christianity. But other people we look at and we think, well, you know, they're more hopeful. They, they, they look more like the corpse and the skeleton. Discriminating between a corpse and a skeleton when you're set with the task of waking them up is pointless. They're both dead. No matter how different they look to you and me, They are both dead. Dead is dead. And that is the task of mission. And we're fools if we we look and think, well, there's no point sharing the gospel with that skeleton, but that, that corpse, I'll give it a go. It's not a difficult task, we're set. It's an impossible task. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. It can't be. It can't be because all of us here We too were spiritually dead skeletons, and yet somehow we have received life. And hope comes. Secondly, mission is fruitful because the Holy Spirit brings the dead to life. Verse 4. 
Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, I spoke as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. It seems just so ridiculous. Speak to them. How can you speak to skeletons? But we forget, how did this physical world come into existence? Because God spoke, and every atom in the cosmos appeared but what a vision to witness as these skeletons are knit together and stand up and then the second command comes verse 9 then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to it this is what the sovereign lord says come breath from the four winds breathe into these slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. The Spirit of God comes rushing down like a wind, as he will at Pentecost. And these people come back to life. And then God tells Ezekiel, look, go back to my people, verse 11. Go back to your people and tell them this message. Verse 12, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up out from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I have done it. What a wonderful promise for a hopeless people. They are beyond hope, skeletons, spiritually dead in their sins. But God says, I know you're dead. I will bring you to life by my spirit. And this promise to Israel, it finds its fulfillment as one man, Jesus Christ, takes the sins of his people upon himself and is put to death, absorbing the spiritual death that we all deserve. He's buried in the ground and then three days later, he rises to life by the power of the spirit And now all who trust in him can share in that life. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and the the promise that uh, all people, the declaration that all people are spiritually dead in our sins. But Paul carries on, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Ezekiel 37 is a description of what happens when you put your trust in Jesus. Humanly speaking, uh, I guess many of us will know here, you, there came a time when, uh, I don't know, I, having rejected God's stuff for ages, I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll give this a go. And, and over a period of maybe a couple of years, it began taking a bit more seriously the claims Jesus made. And as I studied the Bible, I found some of the skepticism and, and some of my doubts and some of the arguments I'd always clung to began to ebb away. And, and over time, I started, I started to feel a growing conviction that Jesus died for my sins and, and that he rose to life to give me eternal life. 
It's kind of slow, up and down process, I guess is the experience for many of us, humanly speaking. Spiritually speaking, what lies behind it is much more dramatic. God breathed by his spirit and the corpse that was you and me came to life. That's the spiritual reality. That's your story. And these verses, they remind a church like ours, which rightfully puts a great emphasis on the Bible, that mere words can't convince people to put their trust in Jesus. We don't bring people to hear the Bible preached or or offer to read the Bible with them because there is some inherent power in words to, to raise the dead or because we're intellectualists and think so long as our arguments are strong enough, then, well, people will have to become Christians. No, we invite friends to come to hear the Bible preached at church and, and we, we seek to speak to them about Jesus and, and maybe read, read the Bible with them because we know that as we see in Ezekiel 37, God's Spirit works as God's Word is proclaimed. That's how God works. We want people to encounter the life-giving power of God's Holy Spirit. And that happens, as here in Ezekiel, as the Word of God is spoken. Just as our breath carries our words, so in Ezekiel we see it is the words that are carried by the power of the Spirit that bring the dead to life. And throughout the history of the church, all over the world, we've seen the most unlikely of people come to spiritual life as just they hear the Bible, words on a page being explained. The explanation for that power is the Holy Spirit. Uh, There have been uh, lots of tributes in recent days for the pastor Tim Keller who died last week. Now, Many will know the story, and a number here were were transformed at that church. In in 1989, he was tasked with encouraging the Presbyterian Church of America in their church planting, starting new churches. And they wanted to start a church in New York City, but he couldn't find anyone who was willing to do it. Uh, The pastors he approached, they refused because New York City was basically seen as the place that church plants go to die. It was the the vanguard for the confidently atheist secular America, dismissive of religion, intellectually immune to the arguments of of apologists, utterly unwilling to accept the ridiculous traditional sexual ethics of the Bible, scornful of what was viewed as the Republican religion. Spiritually speaking, New York City, the bones weren't just bleached dry, they'd been ground up, burned and scattered to the four winds. Now, the interesting thing is all the pastors that Tim Keller spoke to to try and encourage them to get involved with this church plant believed that Jesus rose physically from the dead and rules the universe. And they believed that God works by his spirit as his word is preached. And they believed that the gospel is for all nations and people can become Christians through the gospel. But in practice, they looked at New York City and thought, it's just, no, no. And so Tim and Kathy Keller ended up going because basically, well, we can't ask everybody else to go if we aren't willing to do it ourselves. So they, they kind of, we're not the right people, but let, we'd better do it. Otherwise, we can't tell other people to. And he just preached the good news of Jesus Christ from the Bible, 
praying the Spirit would be at work. And within a few years, this little group of 50 ordinary Christians had exploded to a group of 1,000 and eventually 5,000 money-worshipping, hardened hedge fund managers, sexually active, socially liberal jazz musicians. But they heard the word of God. And as the Bible was taught, they encountered the power of the Holy Spirit. And these skeletons became living, breathing worshippers of God. Now, I've been to Redeemer Church a few years back. And to be honest, it was incredibly ordinary, which is quite encouraging. Um, The music wasn't... um, you know, anything like special. You couldn't think, well, this is the kind of thing which will attract a huge crowd. The people, they were ordinary cross-section of New Yorkers. The sermon was, explained the Bible. It wasn't the best sermon I've heard. You didn't hear amazing rattling of bones. Uh, something phenomenal and weird happened every Sunday. What you did hear in a city whose anthem is, I did it my way, it was just hundreds of people who had gone from spiritually dead to singing the praises of Jesus Christ. And here's the point. If God can make it there, he can make it anywhere. He's got the same power here. The same power here. If people in New York can come to know Jesus, then they can in London too. Look, Ezekiel tells us The task of mission is impossible because people are spiritually dead. It also tells us that the task of mission is worth a go because God works by his spirit as the word is preached to bring the dead to life. And if we get this, I think there are three things. Two things for all of us and one for some of us. Pray, say, go. All of us should pray and say. All of us should pray. We should pray earnestly. Pray for your unbelieving family and friends and course mates and colleagues because only God can bring the dead to life. That's out of our hands. Pray too for our mission partners. Their task is impossible. It's beyond them. Only God can bring the dead to life. So pray. And say, all of us should speak about Jesus and invite others to hear the word of God and do so with a humble confidence. Be confident because the spirit of God does bring the dead to life using ordinary words. Be humble Because we don't know what will happen in this or that specific situation. Ezekiel 37 is not a promise of what God will do every time the Bible is preached. But it is a promise of what he can do. Of what he has done again and again. What he is doing today around the world. So have humble confidence to speak of Christ. To open the Bible with a friend. To invite them to church. So your family, your colleagues, your course mates, they need your willingness to proclaim the only message that can rescue them from physical, spiritual death. The message of Jesus who died from, for their sins and lives forever. Pray, say, and lastly, go. Some here should begin to consider seriously whether you should go. It is extraordinary and wonderful that the majority of our, the vast majority of our mission partners, the 18 mission partners we have as a church, well, they came from amongst us doing ordinary jobs. You don't need to be extraordinary see, to be a missionary. God provides all the power. He does the raising of the dead. You just need to be willing to go. And it may be that for some of us here, it's time to think about that. Let's pray.
Our Lord God, we, we thank you for this extraordinary vision of Ezekiel. We pray that you would help us to have humble confidence. Help us to be realistic, to recognize that to call people to follow Jesus is frankly impossible for all are spiritually dead. But help us to have confidence, to trust that as you did with us, as you did in the vision for Ezekiel, you, God, are at work to raise the dead. Please would we see that as we seek to proclaim Christ in our city today and as we seek to send people to do so around the world. We ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus and the good of those who are lost. Amen.